Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today's guest is Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Robert Lefkowitz, author of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm, which reminds me of that play, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Coliseum, right? Isn't that uh, the play? Yeah. So, uh, Bob, it's such a pleasure to have you. I absolutely love the book. I couldn't put it down. And uh, it had a, you've had an amazing life. So let's go in the beginning of the book. You talk about having heart issues in your early 50s and about your dad having a heart condition that led to an early death. Was your dad's condition which spurred you on to your career choice? Absolutely. Uh, the original inspiration for my becoming a physician actually came from my family doctor, a guy named Dr. Joseph Feibusch who uh, was a family physician and internist and made house calls in the Bronx. Uh, and I was absolutely taken with this guy uh, so that by age seven or eight, I was quite convinced that uh, I wanted nothing more when I grew up than to be a doctor, just like Dr. Feibusch. He let me play with his instruments when he would come, listen to my heart with the stethoscope, loved it. And then when my dad started having heart attacks, uh, I was, I guess, 12 when he had his first heart attack. And uh, yeah, I think at some, uh, not necessarily conscious level, uh, I immediately uh, became more specific in my own mind that not only would I be a physician, but I would be a, a heart doctor. Uh, and uh, I stayed true to that uh, and became a cardiologist. It's interesting that that is not at all, in my experience, an unusual situation. I can't tell you how many colleagues I have, uh, neurosurgeons whose father or mother died of uh, brain cancer, or gastroenterologists who had two people in the family with inflammatory bowel disease. I mean, I think it really does often, not always, but often influence the choice of a specialty in medicine. Your dad sounds like a... a uh, an amazing dad like my dad was. What are some of the key life lessons you learned from your dad that developed you into the person you are today? Because you had great stories about your dad in the book. I think that uh, probably a couple of things when I think back on it. The first is he was great at solving problems. Uh, so I think in the book, I tell these stories about the fact that in general, as a youngster, uh, I was quite successful in school. Uh, and pretty successful at most things. But one thing I was not blessed with was athletic uh, talent. Uh, and at one point, I think it must have been when I was in junior high school, uh, in order to pass physical education, there were several tests that you needed to uh, be able to uh, accomplish. One of them was tumbling. So you, you needed to be able to run. Uh, and then hands first leap over 
one or two of your classmates who would be lying on the on the gym floor uh, land and tumble away without injuring them or yourself. And the other one was you needed to be able to climb a rope up to the ceiling of the gym. I couldn't do either. Uh, and I was beside myself. So as I did with all my problems at that stage of my life, uh, I discussed it with my dad, who was also no athlete. And, you know, he said, well, we'll figure this out together. And so for the tumbling, he put down all kinds of uh, uh, padding on the floor of our little apartment in the Bronx. And we worked. We figured it out together. I mean, he didn't know anything about it. But, yeah, by the time I was done, I was leaping over several pillows. And that was great. We had a, a, a cottage up in the mountains in New York, which we used to go to uh, weekends in the spring and fall. And then all summer, we, uh, I and my mother would stay up there. And so we had some wonderful oak trees there. And uh, he bought a professional climbing rope. We tied it to a, a, a thick branch. And together, we figured out how to climb that rope. And I got great at it. Uh, so from that, I learned that, you know, whatever the problem is, you start off figuring, well, you can figure it out one way or another. That was one thing. The other thing is I always found him very persuasive. But the man never raised his voice. Uh, in, in all the years uh, I was with him, I never once heard him. I heard him disagree with people and with my mother and with others. But he never raised his voice. He never appeared to get angry. And I realized that I sort of adapted uh, that approach to things. Uh, so those are a couple of things I learned from dad. Yeah, I had, I had similar experiences to you. That's why it really resonated with me. You started medical school at 19. Did you feel mature enough looking back or would you recommend someone that same age wait and go or go for it? You know, it's interesting. Uh, back in, in my day, uh, so I guess I graduated college in 1962. Uh, and back then, if you were heading for a career, law, medicine, something like that, you graduated medical school or you graduated college in the spring. And the following fall, you started medical school, law school, whatever. Nobody took time in between. Okay. Today, Everybody does at least one what's called gap year. So my lab is filled with six to eight undergrads uh, every year who are uh, Duke graduates and who plan to go to medical school or graduate school. But no, I would say at least 50 percent of the Duke kids, maybe more now, do a, at least one gap year. Nobody goes straight on. In my day, if you took a gap year, it meant uh, one of a couple of things. One was that you had flunked uh, and didn't want to tell anybody. And so you had to take more coursework. Uh, another was that you were having a nervous breakdown. Uh, and uh, so, yeah. Now, did I think, uh, would I recommend going off to medical school at 19? Well, probably not. Uh, did, did it worry me at the time? I can honestly say it never occurred to me as I headed to medical school at 19 that I would be not mature enough or not ready for. It just wasn't in my head. I mean, I had been looking forward to medical school since I was a little boy. And now here it was. I was ready to touch it. I had been accepted at Columbia, my first choice school. Any, any concerns about <laughs> maturity or lack thereof never even occurred to me. 
Also, I think your generation was more mature, like my kids, gen our kids' generation are more worldly, but I think uh, my generation, your generation were more mature at Absolutely. 19. I think that's true. And I mean, my case was uh, ridiculous altogether. Uh, by the time I graduated from medical school at 23, I uh, was not only married, but I had two children. Uh, was that rare in my class? Absolutely not. I had many classmates in medical school. Granted, most of my classmates were a couple of years older than I was, but I had many classmates who were married with children. Today, you would never see such a thing. Uh, yeah. You know, it's marriage and children are probably delayed a good 10 years, if not more. Uh, absolutely, for sure. Uh, what did you uh, like least and what did you like most about medical school? I'm totally honest with you when I say there was nothing that I liked least. Uh, we have a, an expression here in the South. Now I'm a, I always tell people I've been a Southerner all my life. First, I was from the South Bronx. Uh, and then now I'm actually from the South in North Carolina. Yeah, you but, can tell by your accent. Right, exactly. 50 years I've been living here and I still sound like this. Yeah. Can you, can you imagine what it was like uh, 50 years ago? <laughs> Anyway, uh, the, uh, there's an expression in the South, uh, if somebody is really happy doing what they're doing, you say, well, he's like a hog in slop. Uh, and yeah, and that describes how I was in medical school. I was like a hog in slop. I mean, I loved it. I had been looking forward to this from the time I was seven or eight years old. To me, doctors were special people that were like clergy. They, they had special knowledge that other people did not have access to. I had wanted to gain access to that knowledge for as long as I could remember. And now here I was, uh, and I was, I was learning it. So I loved the basic sciences, everyone, and uh, couldn't wait to get to the clinics in the third and fourth year, and I loved that. Uh, I finished first in my class, uh, which, when you think about it, it wasn't even all that surprising. I mean, because I had such a passion, I had such a love for the material that, uh, you know, I, I when I was studying, I mean, it didn't feel like I was studying or doing something unpleasant that I might not want to do. I mean, I was doing what I wanted to do, uh, learning all this stuff. You mentioned you'd always been a bit of a hypochondriac. Is that because you read too much? Like people who read too much start reading into everything. Well, no, uh, I think there were uh, two reasons that I was a hypochondriac. One, my mother was a horrendous hypochondriac. Uh, and, and definitely in retrospect, uh, suffered from uh, a significant anxiety disorder. Uh, and what today we would call generalized anxiety disorder. She used to swig uh, an anxiolytic medication straight from a bottle. I remember it was green, the medication. You know, it was before the days of things like Valium and Xanax, uh, other medications of that family. But there was at the time a drug called meprobamate. Okay, trade name was Milltown. That was the very first tranquilizer, the first anxiolytic medication. She had it in liquid form. And whatever dose was prescribed, she would swig it right from the bottle. Uh, she didn't take one teaspoon, two teaspoons. 
one day I asked her, mom, aren't you supposed to take a certain dose of that? She says, I take what I need. Uh, she was just very anxious uh, and always had some or another illness. She lived to be 89. So, I mean, she made it through all of that. <laughs> but yeah, I think that just uh, gave me uh, an anxious, hypochondriacal uh, outlook on life. And I think once that's formed at a young age, it can be very hard to shake. And have you managed to shake it or do you still have some of that? Definitely still have some of that. And of course, as a physician, it can be more difficult dealing with hypochondriasis because, I mean, if you and I have the same set of symptoms or imagined symptoms, you might be able to figure out a few things that could do that. But as a physician, I know a hell of a lot more things that can do it, including some much more serious ones. So, yeah, you, you got to fight even that much harder. And of course, as you get older, I'm 80 now. Uh, as you get older, there really are a lot more things that can get you. So, yeah, I still deal with that. And I always will. And by the way, you look amazing. You definitely don't look 80, which I'm sure you hear all the time. Thank you. I, I do. I work very hard at keeping myself fit, trying to control the uh, the things that I can control. Are you still a runner? I don't run, but I do anywhere from 45 to 60 minutes of aerobic exercise every day. I have, over a period of 25 years, equipped my entire basement uh, as a really professional level gym. I have uh, three different uh, aerobic machines next to each other in front of a big TV, a, uh, a treadmill, a recumbent bike, and an elliptical. Then in a second room, I have a huge universal gym with six or seven weight stations. Its footprint is 13 by 13 feet. Then I've got a separate machine uh, for doing what's called weight-assisted pull-ups. Uh, and I've got a, uh, a speed bag uh, set up uh, that I punch. So, uh, yeah, I'm a, a fitness fanatic uh, and, and have been really all my adult life. And that's what's also kept you sharp, right? I mean, the people who don't continue to, I exercise six days a week. I think it's like, it's automatic. I think just automatically. Yeah, same, same as for me. And, and having everything that I need right in my home. And I've been very blessed that I have the resources to be able to equip it like that. I don't need to go out. It doesn't matter what the weather is like. It doesn't matter how I'm feeling about it that day. All I know is, you know, after I have my cup of coffee, look at the newspaper, I'm going down to the basement, and then I'll figure out what I'm going to do today. Uh, but yeah, it's automatic with me. Uh, hard to believe you tutored Stokey Carmichael and tended to Malcolm X when he died. How did meeting those icons or being in, uh, you know, connected to those icons of the civil rights impact you? Well, the more impactful one was Stokely. Uh, and I'll get to him in a minute. Uh, but I had a, a brief chance encounter uh, with Malcolm X, uh, who was assassinated uh, right across the street from the Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center at a meeting hall. And I was a medical student rotating on the uh, emergency room at that time. And so I was there when they brought him in, uh, basically dead. Uh, having been blasted at point-blank range with a double-barrel shotgun. Uh, and so I did, had nothing to do other than perhaps ferrying uh, bags of blood, you know, to the people taking care of him. 
but that was a pretty horrifying experience. And, you know, to a young, impressionable medical student, uh, especially. But it, it really, you know, has stuck in my mind as a, just a, the most horrendous example of the violence that comes from, uh, you know, racial strife. Uh, Stokely was a whole different business. So Stokely was a year behind me at the Bronx High School of Science. And he was having difficulty with, uh, I think, uh, 11th grade mathematics. Uh, so somehow I wound up being his tutor. I was very good at math. And so I tutored him. And, and to his credit, and I guess mine, uh, he easily passed the course, etc. cetera. Uh, I had no idea. Uh, we got obviously got to know each other well. Uh, but I had absolutely no idea what his future would hold, nor did he, uh, I'm sure. But then uh, as the years went by and I saw his involvement in, uh, forget the name of his organization, uh, it, it, it had an acronym and several initials. Uh, yeah, I can't remember it. But anyway, uh, I, I was greatly admiring of his moral courage. Uh, he would go to all these demonstrations in the South at great personal risk, was arrested innumerable times. He was beaten uh, severely, just tremendous moral courage. Uh, and he was not the only one uh, uh, of that generation of us at Bronx Science who went that route. I had a classmate and friend uh, named Todd Gitlin. Uh, Todd Gitlin finished first in our class at Bronx Science, went on to become a sociologist of uh, international repute, went to Harvard, uh, and uh, he became subsequently what's generally referred to as a public intellectual. Uh, but he was one of the presidents of uh, a student, a radical left student organization called SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. Uh, and like uh, like Stokely, he was very much involved in uh, all kinds of civil rights things, etc. So that was sort of a, of a, a piece with that. A, a final coda to the story with Stokely. So of course I lost touch with him, but I followed his career uh, in the news. So again, we graduated in 1959. In right around 1980 to 82, right in there, I was. Uh, getting ready to fly out of Raleigh-Durham Airport uh, to Washington, D.C. for a meeting of a small group of uh, people, including myself, who were writing a biochemistry textbook. <clears throat> and I get on the plane and I sit down. A couple of minutes later, who walks in and sits down next to me? Stokely Carmichael. Wow. I mean, I couldn't believe it. And it wasn't any question like, oh, maybe this is Stokely. I mean, it was Stokely. He didn't look yeah. any different. Uh, so I said, well, I'm not going to miss this chance. Yeah. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, I'm not the only one recognizing him. I mean, as people are coming on, they're saying, hey, Stokely, how are you? Putting their hands up and this and that. So I introduced myself. He says, oh, yeah. He says, I remember you. Uh, he was wearing like a Hawaiian shirt, uh, slacks, uh, no, no, no socks and uh, what kind of think sandals. He was very surprised that I recognized him. He said, hey, man, how'd you make me? I said, what do you mean, how'd I make you? You look exactly like you did in high school. He said, well, I try to be uh, kind of laid back and sort of fly under the radar these days. 
I said, yeah, I see everybody. Uh, you're really flying <laughs> under the radar. Half the plane is saying hello to you. Yeah. Uh, so we got to chatting. And I said, well, what do you do these days? And I'll never forget his, his response. He said, I'm a professional revolutionary. <laughs> I said, OK. And he told me a little bit about that. He was on his way, I remember, to Syria and North Korea. Oh, wow. <laughs> anyway, anyway, he died young in his 60s of prostate cancer. Wow. Yeah. Interesting story. Um what made you become a researcher? Because in the book, you kept saying all you ever wanted to do was tend to patients and, and your dad. That's what he wanted you to do. So what made you become a researcher? Well, as with so many of us, uh, serendipity, fate, luck, whatever you want to call it, uh, often intervenes in unexpected, unpredicted ways in our lives. Uh, I, I wrote a... Uh, a piece, an autobiographical piece, a number of years ago for one of the scientific journals. And I think I titled it something like A Serendipitous Scientist, because it was sheer serendipity that led to my becoming a scientist. As you said, I never had any goal professionally other than to be a practicing physician, uh, both in college as a chemistry major and in medical school. I had numerous opportunities to. Uh, try my hand at research. Never touched a single one. Uh, in medical school, it was especially prominent because we had quite a few two-month blocks where you could do research electives, and many of my classmates did just that. But whenever I had a, an elective period, I took a clinical elective. I, I always wanted to just enhance my clinical uh, chops. Uh, and so I would have happily gone on to finish residency training and practice medicine the rest of my life. But the Vietnam War was raging. Uh, I graduated medical school in 66. And there was at the time a lottery draft for all men over 18. But for physicians, there was a separate draft called the doctor draft. There was no lottery. Okay. Everybody went in. So you were deferred until you graduated medical school. Then you were given a further two-year deferment to get some residency training under your belt. And then you went in 100%. And you were drafted in either the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, or the Public Health Service. If you were drafted into any one of the first three, you can pretty much be assured of spending one of your two conscripted years in the war zone. But if you got into the Public Health Service, you had at least a fighting chance of not being sent to Vietnam and being assigned to one of the stateside research institutions like the CDC, the NIH, a couple of uh, research installations uh, on the Indian reservations. As you might expect, that uh, assignment to get into the uh, public health service and go to the NIH was extraordinarily competitive. Everybody wanted that uh, for the obvious reason. Uh, so it was very competitive to get it. But as I mentioned, I was first in my class in medical school, great recommendations, et cetera. I was lucky enough to get that and be assigned to the NIH, where I spent 80% of my time assigned uh, in a research lab and the other 20% of my time uh, doing clinical uh, work uh, on the patients who were admitted there for research studies. And things didn't go well. I mean, for the first year, year and a half, I met with nothing but failure. Uh, but uh, 
I did ultimately succeed in getting some work done and publishing my first couple of papers uh, and began to think, well, maybe, maybe there's something here that I would want to incorporate into my career. But I was far from convinced. And so I uh, ignored the pleas of my mentors to stay on for additional years uh, and instead went off to the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Uh, and uh, there uh, I finished my, uh, my clinical training but also realized uh, I had my epiphany up there in Boston. Uh, and that was because uh, initially uh, I was doing full-time clinical work again, which I had always loved and did again, but I realized something was missing. So it was sort of the uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder kind of deal. I said, you know, I really miss being in the lab. I miss having data. Uh, and it was that epiphany that made me realize that, you know, I'm going to need to somehow at some point uh, do some more research training and perhaps see if this is going to fit into my overall career. And eventually it did, but that didn't happen overnight. It took probably five, seven years to be drawn so deeply uh, into the research that it became the major part of my career, probably 80, 85 percent of my time being spent that way. Uh, you write about your love of data, which you just started talking about, which I guess connects you and your father's love of numbers. We know why data is important, but many people feel the medical professions used to gin up uh, needs for new drugs to make more money. Is that a legitimate concern? There's an issue, and I wouldn't say it's the medical profession. I would say it's the uh, pharmaceutical industry. Uh, because it's an industry, right? I mean, these are companies and they have to show a profit. Developing a, a, uh, a drug is extraordinarily difficult uh, and expensive. It takes not one or two or five or 10 years, it often takes 20, 25 years, billions of dollars. And so the problem is they have to recoup that. But that said, uh, yeah, I mean, the prices of many drugs are real price gouging. Uh, and frankly, I think that there probably should needs to be stricter, uh, uh, stricter regulation of all that. But I don't think that comes from physicians in any way. And of course, you know, something that's really only developed in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years uh, is direct advertising of prescription medications to patients. Uh, my wife and I tend to watch CNN. Uh, as our major uh, TV station. And I mean, granted, they have an older demographic, I'm told, of, of people who watch it. But I would say uh, the majority of all commercials on that TV station are for prescription drugs. Is that a good thing, you know, that um, people are more knowledgeable and can ask their physician about different drugs or does it make it more dangerous that they are starting to think that they know what the formulation to, um, to help themselves is. I'm more with the latter. Uh, I'm not, I don't think it's a good thing at all. Uh, it takes a lot of knowledge to understand how the drugs work, what the side effects are, the risk-benefit ratio, how it might interact with other drugs you're taking, uh, how it might interact with other conditions that you have. It's a very complex equation. And you know, the idea that you would need to to say to your doctor, hey, doc, I mean, assuming you have a good physician, hey, doc, yeah. uh, 
what do you think about my trying drug A? Well, I mean, you would like to think that the doctor knows enough about it that if a drug, drug A is any sort of a reasonable choice, he doesn't need you uh, to tell him about it. That's just how I feel about it. Yeah, I think uh, it's very interesting, all these commercials, and I hear people go both ways. Uh, the placebo effect you found out is real. How much control does the mind have in controlling pain and other maladies? So talk a little bit about that, because you write about that in the book. Yeah, so my experience with this began uh, when I was a fourth-year medical student doing what we call a sub-internship. Uh, I mean, I'm not an intern because I'm not a licensed physician yet. But I'm a senior student, so you know I'm pretty far along in my formal medical education. And so we're serving as interns in a hospital, uh, but with supervision by a resident. So I, there used to be a, a hospital, no longer exists, called the Goldwater Memorial Hospital on uh, an island in the middle of the East River in New York City. It was a chronic disease hospital. These were means the patients who were there were there for months years even, uh, because they couldn't live outside a hospital setting. Uh, and amongst the types of patients you would see there would be patients with crippling uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and of course, in those days, there were none of these amazing biological drugs that you see advertised uh, today. Uh, I mean, it was barbaric. The, the, you know, there were just, yeah, we had steroids. We had gold. Uh, we even had arsenic, but none of those things were uh, very good. So I, it was an old lady who basically lived in the hospital, uh, and she was completely crippled, and her hands and feet were like mangled by the uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And so one night I was on duty and was called to her bedside, and they had tried everything on her. Uh, nothing worked. And she was really in pain. So I figured, yeah, I'll do an experiment. So I said, I've got some new, I made up a story. I said, I, I got a new medication to try and this and that. I'm going to give you an injection. Really think it'll help. And I replayed it up and I gave her a little shot of subcutaneously a normal saline solution. Went back to see her. You know, an hour or two later, she was fast asleep. So in the morning, I went to see her again. She says, doctor, that was magic. She said, I never slept so well in my life, uh, and I hope I can continue to get that medication. And she did. Uh, and uh, it really worked. So that was my first personal exposure to the placebo effect. But it is real. It is real. Uh, more significant uh, with certain conditions than others. Uh, Skillfully applied, I think it's a good tool for physicians to use. It confounds clinical trials. Okay, so it's common knowledge in the clinical trials world that, you know, all, how can I put it, all uh, believable or, uh, you know, valid clinical trials are what we call double blind, right? Neither the patient nor the investigators know who's getting the placebo and who's getting the real drug. And then the study runs. And then at the end, you break the code and you see what's going on. So it's common knowledge that the uh, placebo effect in most clinical trials is 30%. Okay. So it doesn't matter what you're investigating, 30% of the people who get a sugar pill will report that they feel better. Okay. Now that's 
in all clinical trials. In some conditions, most notably things like depression or anxiety, the placebo effect rises to 50%. So now, even if you're giving them an inactive drug, half the patients are going to say they feel better. So how the heck do you find the active drug? Well, it means it's got to have a statistically significant increment above the 50. So maybe 62 or 65%. But yeah, these drugs that are approved, they're approved because they were effective in 65% as opposed to the placebo of 50 or 51. When you hear that, it doesn't give you as much confidence uh, as you would like to have. But I know I have found this, to me, the biggest and the most useful placebo effect in medicine is reassurance. Okay. Either caring, empathetic reassurance by the physician and or reassurance by a negative test. Okay. I have had the experience and I'm aware of several colleagues who've had the identical experience to this. During a time of significant stress, a number of years ago, I developed headaches, okay, chronic headaches. Now, I don't suffer from headaches, so this was new for me. They had a particular distribution around my right eye over here. Went on for a couple of months. I became more and more concerned uh, that I had a brain tumor, okay. Uh, I tried everything. Nothing worked. I even got special massages. So. With great trepidation, I went to see a neurologist who could find nothing wrong and ordered uh, an MRI of my head. And while waiting for the results of that test, I was very anxious. Test come back, perfectly normal. No lesions, no brain tumor, no nothing. Within two weeks, the headaches were gone. Uh, again, just the reassurance. Pain in particular is amplified by anxiety. If you do nothing for the pain, but you can somehow reduce the anxiety component, you will, by definition, reduce the experience of the pain. Uh, and again, the uh, reassurance of a physician can just do wonders in that regard. Now, there's also something called the nocebo effect. I don't know if you ever heard of that. That's the opposite of the placebo effect. So the nocebo effect is if a patient has reason to believe that something bad is going to happen, like a side effect of a medication, their chances of developing it are greater. Okay. A common example of that is muscle pain with statins. Okay. So statins are amongst the most widely prescribed drugs in the world. Uh, and a certain very small fraction, very small fraction of patients develop muscle aches on a, uh, when they take statins. But it's a tiny fraction. But a lot more people than should be feeling muscle aches complain of muscle aches, okay? Because they're expecting muscle aches. Uh, so again, that's what we call the nocebo effect. But I do believe that uh, the mind, uh, is a very important uh, uh, playing field for all manner of symptomatology. And, uh, you know, your mind could help you heal quicker because of, uh, of how you think about things, right? 
Well, absolutely. If you have a positive attitude, I mean, there have been all kinds of studies on stuff like that. Uh, the role of support groups in patients with, say, breast cancer, et cetera, uh, where demonstrably the intervention, in this case, participation in a uh, in a support group, demonstrably it's doing nothing to the basic pathology. Okay. And yet outcomes are better. Patients live longer, uh, et cetera. I uh, I noticed that you weren't intimidated by legendary physicians. How did you develop your confidence without being cocky? I was never cocky. I'm not cocky now. I, I'm, you know, like a lot of people, I think I, I have this so-called imposter syndrome uh, that I don't really look at myself as necessarily uh, being worthy of a lot of the accolades that I get. But uh, I developed the ability relatively early on to sort of play the role that I was expected to play. And so, you know, when I, when I would put on that white coat, uh, even as a very young physician, I would almost feel like I was investing myself with special powers. Uh, well, I've got this white suit on or this white coat on. Yeah. I really, I really can do this. I really can do this. Uh, and I think I was able, not because I was trying, but I really think I could exude that confidence without seeming to be cocky uh, because I felt confident. I really did. Uh, but, I mean, I there was a great story in the book where this guy uh, was monitor monitoring you. I guess you were an intern. Yeah. And, and that guy was wrong. And a lot oh, of people yeah. wouldn't have, yeah. Yeah, that was a, quite a story. Yes. So uh, so I was at Columbia as an intern. And uh, at the time, I would have to say probably the two greatest clinical training programs in internal medicine were the one at Columbia Presbyterian, where I was training, and the one at the Massachusetts General Hospital, which is the Harvard Hospital in Boston. Uh, and sort of the, the pinnacle of house staff training is the, so, the chief resident. The chief resident is this all-knowing, uh, never-sleeping, uh, amazing uh, figure. Uh, and there was a, uh, and presumably the best of his or her uh, class, if you will. And that's why they had gotten the job as chief resident. So there was a tradition in January uh, of the year, uh, of your intern year, the, the two chief residents at those institutions uh would switch for a week. So the mass general chief resident would come to Columbia for a week and our chief resident would go up there. Well, so the chief resident arrives from uh, Boston uh, and this guy had, a, a, as I say, a reputation that preceded him. He was supposed to be the most brilliant guy anybody had ever seen and very acerbic, uh, very cutting, loved to just cut people down to size because he knew so much more. And he was a nephrologist, uh, a kidney doctor. Okay, so very first day he's there, just my luck. Uh, it's decided he's going to make what's called work rounds with me, okay, on my service, just luck of the draw. Okay, so here we are at 7 a.m. I got 12 patients on my service. No electronic records back then. It's an open ward. 
And we're going to go around. I have what's called a chart rack with the charts of the 12 patients. We're going to go to an open ward, bed to bed. I'm going to present each patient. We're going to make a brief exam, talk about it. He's going to advise. So we get to one bed. It was a patient, all I remember, had some sort of chronic renal disease. Now, one of the things I remember most vividly about my internship is that I was so exhausted and so sleep deprived, I read virtually nothing, no medical literature. But, and this is something that's happened to me on several occasions in my career. Again, I talk about serendipity. Serendipity, at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., uh, I knew this guy was coming to round with me. So I went to the house staff library just down the hall. And I sat there for three hours just reading journals about articles related to my patients. And my patient had a rare kidney disease. And there just happened to be an article literally that week in the New England Journal of Medicine, which was on the new journal shelf. So I read that article. Okay, so now he's back uh, and at the bedside. we're at the bedside, he and I, and we're talking about this particular patient. And he doesn't like the way I'm managing the patient. He says, you should be using such and such a drug. He says, and in fact, there's an article just out this week in the New England Journal of Medicine, which says that this drug is, uh, is you know, the one to use in this patient. I said, well, I, I, I beg to differ. I said, I, I, I've read that article as if I was reading a million articles. This was the only <laughs> damn article I had read in six months. I said, well, no, I, I believe that article said just the opposite, Dr. Thea, that uh, it's contraindicated in this case. He says, no, you got that wrong. Well, I stood my ground. I may mean, have read the damn article two hours before. <laughs> he says, come on, Lefkowitz, let's go down to the house staff library. Do you, do you have a library here? I said, yes, yeah, just down the hall. He says, let's go find that article. Went down there, found it. He says, my God, you're right. Now, to his credit, the rest of the week, that's all he could talk about. Whenever they were around, he says, and I want to tell you, this guy Lefkowitz called me on that, uh, and he was right, and I was wrong, and he had the guts to stand up to me, et cetera. So it was a real kick. Uh, but I, again, I was just fortunate. I just read the article two hours before. I was impressed by him, by the fact that he admitted he was wrong. Absolutely. And, you know, he went on to the most amazing career. Uh, he was chairman of the Department of Medicine at Yale at age 33. Uh, and then he was chairman somewhere else. He went on to be, I mean, he just, he was head of the, uh, the something called Partners, which is the uh, combined uh, health systems of the Mass General and the Peter Ben Brigham. He had a remarkable career. Uh, and, you know, from time to time over the last 50 years, our paths crossed and we both had a good laugh about it. Yeah, it was a great story in your book. Uh, you were, as you mentioned, your Vietnam era service was working for the National Institute of Health. You wrote about uh, falling into depression because your experiments in NIH were unsuccessful. What did you learn about handling failure? Well, I didn't do well with it initially. And the reason was I had no experience of it. Okay. Uh, but the only thing I had ever failed at in my life was climbing that rope and doing those, uh, you know, those uh, tumbling things. and and. With some help from my dad, I was able to do that. So I just had no experience of sustained failure at anything I had ever tried to do. Uh, so I did poorly. And, I, and then four or five months into my time at the NIH, my father, to whom I was so close, I was an only child, uh, dropped dead of his fourth heart attack. Uh, so that put me even further down in the tube. Uh, 
But I had a lot of support from my uh, two mentors. And one particularly meaningful uh, exchange I had was with another senior scientist, not my mentor, but a guy who had a lab just down the hall. And I was at lunch one day and he came by and he knew that I was really suffering. And he started talking to me. And he says, let me, let me teach you something, Bob. He said, do you have any idea what fraction of experiments for the average scientist might be successful or productive? I said, no. He said, you know, it's probably only about 1%. He said, now, how about for a really superb scientist, a, a potential Nobel laureate, top of the line, uh, what percentage of, of his experiments might succeed? I said, I don't know. He said, you know, it could be as high as maybe 2%. Uh, so that really stuck with me. That doesn't matter how good you are. Uh, you know, 98, 99% of what you're doing is not going to be productive. And uh, my experience of it is that's true. So you need to somehow learn to take some pride in what you learn from a failed experiment, which is always something. I mean, it's like Thomas Edison said that, you know, it's not that he has had 10,000 failures, he's learned 10,000 things that don't work, you know, words to that effect. And that's really true. Now, it helps once you begin to get a few successes under your belt. Of course, at the beginning, you have no successes under your belt. But I, I, I remember uh, when uh, I used to play a lot of softball as a teenager. And I if I would come up and the first time I would strike out and the second time I would foul out and the third time I would also ground out. By the time I came up the fourth time, I was pretty down in the mouth. It was a better than average chance I'd screw up the fourth at bat. But if I, if I got a hit the first time, I was golden. I relaxed. I knew I had that hit. You know, I had, I've got that first hit and I'd often go three for four or something like that. So, yeah, it's a matter of just developing uh, some calluses uh, and a, a reservoir of at least some successes to fall back on. Uh, and also to have an encouraging you know, mentor or figure with you who can say, well, it's all right. You know, we're, we're making progress, et cetera, et cetera. What skills do you need to be a great researcher? And all, are all the skills different to lead a lab than, and than being a researcher? And you even mentioned about somebody in the book who is a great leader uh, and a great manager. And I think you recruited him onto your team. So uh, what do you need to be a great researcher and also the skills different to lead a lab? Well, you know, that's a very complex question. So I've often observed, I've been fortunate in my career to work with a number of remarkably talented people, I would say geniuses. But what I've learned is that there are all different kinds of genius, okay? So some people are geniuses at uh, seeing what's a good problem to work on. Some people are geniuses in designing just the right experiment. Okay, which is an art form. It's sort of akin to an attorney asking just the right question because, you know, your result can't be any better than the experiment you design. Then there are some people who ain't that terrific in designing experiments, but when it comes to actually carrying them out, reducing them to practice, they're geniuses. Then there are other people who are fantastic geniuses at seeing patterns in seemingly unrelated data. And then there are some people who are geniuses at 
a broad synthesis of many different kinds of findings. So there's all of that. Nobody has it all. Nobody has it all. So the key thing in a team is to have all of those things represented by somebody. Now, as I say, nobody has it all. Uh, to be successful, you need to have some of what I just mentioned. Nobody's got it all, but I'd say if you got three of those, you're probably going to be in good shape. All that said, to be a leader, to lead a, a team is yet a different set of skills, many of which are intuitive. Okay. Uh, one, you have got to be able to see what the really important problems are. Absolutely. Because as a leader, that's one of the most important jobs you have is to choose what we do. Okay. So you need that. You also need to be very effective in both written uh, and oral presentation of your thoughts and ideas, because you have to be able to attract grant money to do your program. And the only, uh, getting grants is a matter of convincing granting agencies that you've got a great and original idea and, and you can do it. So I've ha I have scientists, have had them in the past, who are fabulous in many different ways, but either because English isn't their first language or something else, they're just not great at telling a compelling story. And, you know, that's part of the presentation thing. What we do in the end is we write papers. You have to be able to not just sell your ideas to get the grant money, then you have to write the papers. So that's another very important thing. And then I think you have to have, to be any kind of leader, you have to have a certain kind of charisma, okay? That's the toughest part because you are who you are. People have, have different personalities. And one of the most important things is enthusiasm, okay? Because there's nothing more infectious in a leader than enthusiasm. But what I've learned is you can't fake enthusiasm. I mean, you're either an enthusiastic person or you're not. And the problem here is there are people who are very enthusiastic. They just don't show, they don't know how to show it or they're self-conscious showing it. So they don't show it. But if people are going to follow you as a leader, they have to believe you're enthused about what you're doing. Okay. I tell the story in the book of, of how one of my trainees who has gone on to a remarkably distinguished career named chair at Cornell, uh, it told the following story. It was 20 years ago, and Duke was having like a big feshrift or celebration for my 60th birthday. And as part of that, we had about 100 of my trainees back. I have over 200 now, more like 250 formal trainees. Anyway, so this guy was telling a story about how he was working late in the lab many years before. This would have been in the 1980s. Uh, and he was talking to one of his uh, benchmates who was also there very late at night. And he was telling him how one of the things that really kept him so revved up was that Bob uh, had made it clear to him that his project was the most important one in the lab, uh, the most central one. And so his benchmate uh, basically said, 
Well, you know, I beg to differ. I mean, it's quite clear to me from my interactions with Bob that my project is the most important. Uh, so then a third guy came along and he said, what are you talking about? I mean, my project is clearly the most central one in the whole lab, but Bob's made that clear to me. So the next day I come in and I'll short I'm settled in my desk. The three guys come in and they said, Bob, look, we got this argument going on. Whose project is the most important one to you of the three we've got? And I looked at them and I said, come on, guys. I said, the answer is obvious. They said, what? I said, all of them. I said, you know, in the moment that I'm talking to any one of you, in that moment, your project is the most exciting and uh, one to me. And, and you see that. Uh, but when I'm talking to this guy, I feel the same way about it. And that's the truth. So I think, you know, call that what you will, enthusiasm, charisma, whatever. You can't fake it. Uh, so anyway, I think that's really one of the most important characteristics of a leader. But unfortunately, I know many scientists who are quite excellent and who have a number of the characteristics that I listed, but don't got that one. Uh, and uh, they're really not effective leaders. Uh, what would you say your leadership style is? Persuasion, not coercion. Uh, I guess I, I got that from my dad, not the words, but yeah. I mean, I never tell somebody in my lab, even though they're, you know, they're decades junior to me. Uh, I never say, okay, you're going to do this. Never do it. Uh, I work by persuasion. I can I convince people that what I'm suggesting is really what they should do because it's the path that stands the best chance of working. And if they've got a better idea, I'll listen and say, you know what? Sort of like this guy, Sam Thier, back on rounds many years. You're right. Let's go with that. So I, I like the best idea uh, to win out. Uh, I, I never power people or push them around based on my seniority. Uh, at, at what point did you think you were a contender for the Nobel and how long were you driven to get it? Because you, I think you thought you were going to get in the mid-90s and it didn't happen till was it 2012? Yeah. So I would say that uh, at one level, I was never driven uh, to get the Nobel Prize. I mean, it's not like I was working for the Nobel Prize or anything else. I was just doing what I do. And I think that's true of most, but not all scientists. I never really thought much about it until I would say 1994, when two scientists whose work was very distinct from mine, but clearly related, very closely related, shared the Nobel Prize. And Lots of people said to me at that point, well, Bob, you know, they can give the prize to up to three people. And they gave it to these two guys. You really should have been the third one, because although your work's very distinct, the two pieces fit together. I mean, without going into the science, I work on something. I discovered a family of drug receptors called G-protein coupled receptors. OK, so these are receptors for drugs and hormones in the cell membrane which work by interacting with another protein called the G protein, okay? G protein coupled receptors or GPCR. So in 1994, the prize was awarded to the two guys who had discovered G proteins. Well, the natural was to give the third slot to the guy who discovered the receptors that couple to the G proteins, but they didn't do it for whatever reason. So that's when I first started thinking about uh, the Nobel and saying, well, I guess that's it, because I doubt that they'll come back, you know, so 
close to this thing and ever give another prize. So I guess that's dead. And I didn't worry about it anymore. Ten years later, 2004, they give the prize to two scientists who had discovered uh, the receptors through which we smell, which turned out to be a subgroup of the larger group of G-protein-coupled receptors that I had discovered years before. And in fact, my work made their discoveries possible. They basically used the information that I had published to what we call clone and isolate these smell receptors. And again, it was two scientists. They got the prize. I didn't. That really threw me for a loop. It was sort of like, oh, my God. Again, this uh, amazing thing came so close. So I, I was convinced at that point that I had no chance to win the prize. That said, from then on, I increasingly had the feeling that the body of work I had done was prize worthy. That was to say, whereas I had not felt that earlier with the awarding of these two prizes, you know, I really felt with all the objectivity I could bring to it, that the body of work that I had produced was clearly at least at the level of these two prizes. So, you know, I, I was kind of felt bad about that. Uh, and I, I would be uh, less than honest if I didn't say that there were years uh, after the 2004 uh, prize that I didn't think about it actively. And in particular, you may or may not know, the Nobel Prizes are always announced in, I think it's the second week in October. The actual awarding of the prizes doesn't occur until uh, until December 10th. So it's two months in between. So, and not only are they announced in October, but they're announced in a set order, one prize per day. So Monday, medicine and physiology. Tuesday, physics. Wednesday, uh, chemistry. Thursday, I think is uh, economics or literature. And then Friday is the other one. And then peace is the following Monday. So, yeah, I'd be less than honest if uh, I wasn't uh, wondering, you know, as as that Monday would arrive, uh, you know, Sunday night I'd go to sleep and I wouldn't say I set the alarm, but, you know, I wonder if I'll get a call and then I would wake up and, well, obviously it didn't happen. But then, but after about five years of that, I sort of gave up on that too. So I, I really wasn't even thinking about it. So then in 2012, two strange things happened. People often say to me, were you surprised when you got that call at 5 a.m.? And I often say, well, yes and no. There was no way to be totally surprised because, you know, I'd been thinking about this for 20 years one way or another. But in terms of, yes, I was surprised, two reasons. One, there's often a, a buzz, a rumor mill. Uh, in the year that somebody gets the Nobel Prize, people are talking, hey, you know, so-and-so's got a great shot. You know, people even have bets on this, et cetera. Uh, and nothing had surfaced. I hadn't heard any rumors. And, you know, I'm pretty well connected. Uh, I heard no rumors at all. And on top of everything, Monday had come and gone. I hadn't won the prize in medicine or physiology. Okay. So when I got a call on Wednesday to tell me I had won the prize in chemistry, I was shocked uh, because, you know, 
I would have thought that uh, if I had ever won, it would have been in medicine or physiology. But, you know, the work I had done was published mostly in biochemical journals. So essentially it was chemistry, biochemistry. So it shouldn't have been that shocking. Uh, but yeah, it took me totally by surprise. People often say, well, how do you feel? Were you elated? Well, not initially. I would say my initial response was not that of elation, but more of relief. Like, oh my God, the monkey's off my back. And just thinking that, you know, never again in my career will I ever have to answer the question, Bob, when do you think you're finally going to win the Nobel Prize? Uh, and that was that was a good feeling. It was like getting to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah, exactly. It's very analogous. Yeah, I think that was terrific. All right. So we have time just for one quick uh, one minute answer. And, and I want to thank you for coming on. Um, what are you doing now and what keeps you motivated? So what are you doing day to day now? Well, uh, a couple of things. One, uh, believe it or not, I still work full time. Uh, I'm 80 years old. Uh, I have a laboratory with uh, about 15 people in it. Uh, that's far from the largest lab I've had. My lab once swelled to 35 people uh, when I was in my prime. Uh, so I still go in, uh, have a load of fun. My favorite thing is just talking with the people in the lab, cooking up experiments, you know, hoping for that uh, one more big discovery, which is just around the corner, just around yeah. the corner. And then trying to take as good care of myself as I uh, possibly can. Uh, you know, I told you about this gym that I have in the basement and all the things I do there. Uh, I'm a vegan vegetarian, uh, as is my wife. Uh, so we eat healthy. We, uh, I exercise. Uh, I try to get as much sleep as, as is necessary. So, yeah, I'm trying to both take care of myself and continue, uh, you know, working in the lab, perhaps with, uh, no less passion, uh, but maybe a little less energy, uh, and trying to to spend a little more time reading outside, you know, the scientific fields. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today, and congratulations on your amazing Mickey Mantle-like career. Thank you. Thank you. It's been fun talking with you, Mark. Yeah. So enjoy the rest of your day, and uh we hope to see you all on Friday when we have another interview with the um, Jill Lubin, who wrote a book on guerrilla uh, publicity. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.